Welcome to Pharmacy to Dose, the critical care podcast. And I'm your host, Nick Peters. And wherever you are and however you are listening, thank you. QXMD builds mobile solutions that drive evidence-based care in clinical practice. So check out Read for easy access to research personalized for you. Calculate for over 500 easy-to-use decision support tools and learn to earn CME online in minutes per day. Try them today at qxmd.com slash apps. Again, that is qxmd.com slash APPS. Well, tis the season um, to certainly say what you are thankful for as we're recording this uh, right after Thanksgiving. And I've said it before and I'll say it again. I'm, I'm so thankful for each and every one of you, the friends of the pod, from you know being a guest on an episode to telling your peers and colleagues about the pod to hearing stories about how you all appreciate or how it's helped you learn a specific topic. It all legitimately makes my day. It's all humbling. And I, I really just wanted to take a quick second and just remind you all of how much I appreciate all of you and your support. Um, and so excited for today's episode. Um, you know, as I said, we're recording this a day after Thanksgiving. And so for many, this topic may be extremely timely (laughs) and I keep working on ways, um, to kind of implement new creative, um, kind of activities or things within the podcast to make it a little more interactive. And this episode tries something new. So I'm joined by Kent Owusu to talk all things alcohol withdrawal. Now, Kent and I created a survey and a poll on social media and a pharmacy listserv to try and get a better idea of how the listeners managed alcohol how the listeners manage alcohol withdrawal disorder. So we'll be including and kind of dissecting some of those results throughout our episode. Now, our special guest today, Dr. Ken Owusu, received a Bachelor of Science in Biochemistry and Biology from Florida State University in Tallahassee, Florida, and a Doctor of Pharmacy from Auburn University. Subsequently, he completed a PGY-1 pharmacy practice residency and a PGY-2 critical care specialty residency at Yale New Haven Hospital in New Haven, Connecticut. Additionally, he is board certified in pharmacotherapy and critical care. Following his residency training, Dr. Owusu spent several years practicing as a clinical pharmacy specialist in neurocritical care and served as the residency director of the emergency medicine specialty residency program. He serves as an adjunct faculty for the University of Connecticut and University of St. Joseph's Colleges of Pharmacy, in addition to providing lectures for the Yale School of Medicine Advanced Practice Provider, or APP, pharmacotherapy courses. More recently, Dr. Owusu transitioned into a more integrated role within the Yale New Haven Health System as a lead for care signature and lead system initiatives aimed at reducing clinical care variation by the development of clinical pathways for service lines. Kent, thank you so much for joining me. How was your Thanksgiving? Nick, uh, thank you for having me. I am still trying to recover from my food coma from yesterday. Um, (laughs) My Thanksgiving was great. Um, Spent it with my sister and nephews. Um, So very small, but we're grateful for so many things uh, in this day and age. Oh, absolutely. Now you got to let the listeners in. Um, how many, how many plates did you get when, when it, like the meal kind of came out? We're, we're excluding leftovers at the moment. <laughs> so I think if, if full disclosure, I think I had three and a half full plates. <laughs> um, not including desserts. Um, uh, so yeah, I, I think I overdid it for sure. Well, if there's any time to do it, it's it's on Thanksgiving. It's my favorite holiday. You know, it's a day of of being around. You know, right now your close immediate family. You know, you get a big meal. You fall asleep to some football. You start getting in the holiday mood. I I think it's just the absolute best. Yeah, and what's what's interesting is that because my family, so my um my background is Ghanaian, so we do a hybrid Thanksgiving where we do the traditional turkey and all of your regular size, but we also put in some traditional African dishes. So it's almost double the amount of food you're, you would expect to eat. So it's, it's certainly no joke. And I, I agree if any time was the right time to overeat, this was definitely it. <laughs> That's awesome. I, I love when, um, families and people, they, you know, they, they create their own 
kind of um, rituals and things for Thanksgiving. And so kind of adding in some of your, some of the native dishes and bringing in some of the kind of your local African cuisine and things sounds like just an absolute awesome twist to an even better holiday. Yeah. And it gives you more excuses to continue to eat until you can't eat more. (laughs) Now, you know, like I hinted at in, in the introduction, you know, I think a lot of people not only may have um, indulged in some food, but also some beverages, right? It's holiday heart season here. So um, we're talking about alcohol withdrawal disorder. Now, before we kind of get into the nitty gritty and, and talk about all of it, I guess, why do we even care about alcohol withdrawal? And, you know, what consequences can occur that make this a syndrome or disorder that we recognize and try to treat as, as quickly as we can? So Nick, that's that's a really interesting question because actually after nicotine, alcohol is the most commonly abused drug uh, globally. Uh, ironically, though, it wasn't until the late 1950s, so not too long ago, that alcohol withdrawal disorder was actually shown to be a physiologic manifestation of abrupt reduction in the amount of alcohol that one has been consuming. So as you can imagine, Nick, that's not very long ago. And in terms of consequences, alcohol withdrawal disorder can vary in severity. And oftentimes it can make the care that we provide for our patients very complex and complicated. It can also increase the morbidity in critically ill patients. So if we don't pay attention to this, you can imagine how, how that can negatively impact the quality of care we provide to our patients. Now, how do we diagnose or recognize alcohol withdrawal disorder? So recognizing alcohol withdrawal disorder can be tricky, especially when it presents similar to other clinical conditions that our patients may present with. There are different types of alcohol withdrawal, and the symptoms may range from mild, where a patient may exhibit jittery movements and sometimes nausea, diaphoresis, or sweating. And then the patients might also present with more severe symptoms, such as seizures and death in some unfortunate cases. Now, are there different types of alcohol withdrawal or is it is it a little more um, kind of cut and dry where you you are in you have alcohol withdrawal disorder or you do not? Yeah, there's certainly different types of alcohol withdrawal, and perhaps we can get into some of the physiology and what is happening when someone who um, has consumed either acute or chronic amounts of alcohol. So maybe let's get into that. So a few things we know. So first, we know that GABA, specifically GABA-A receptors and NMDA receptors, play a critical role in the complex pathophysiology of alcohol withdrawal disorder. We also know that During the acute ingestion of alcohol, these NMDA receptors, which are excitatory in nature, become inhibited. And during this time, your GABA-A receptors, which are inhibitory in nature, are stimulated. So in the acute scenario, Nick, this leads to anxiolytic and sedative effects from parts of the brain, including the cortex and the brainstem. And we know that the brainstem includes the midbrain, which is continuous with the thalamus. So... I say all this because the distribution of these receptors, specifically the GABA-A receptors in the brain, influences the manifestations we see when patients are going through withdrawal symptoms, which include seizures. During chronic alcohol use, however, the GABA-A receptors are downregulated and the NMDA receptors become upregulated, and this happens to maintain CNS balance. So when all of a sudden there is no longer alcohol in the system, these compensatory mechanisms are all of a sudden exposed. So now you have an increased function of your excitatory receptors, and there's a subsequent increase in the glutamate binding to these NMDA receptors. At the same time, the inhibition provided by the GABA-A receptors is reduced, so now you also have autonomic excitability and psychomotor agitation. In terms of the time course, I believe, uh, alluding to your initial question, The mild symptoms, such as the autonomic symptoms, your headache, tremors, anxiety, sometimes insomnia, may be observed as early as six hours after the last ingestion, whereas seizures and other more severe symptoms usually occur no sooner than 12 to 48 hours. Additionally, 
alcohol hallucinosis can be an early symptom, and with that regard, the visual symptoms usually occur more commonly than the auditory symptoms. Finally, Nick, delirium tremens, or DTs, usually begin about three days after the appearance of the initial alcohol withdrawal symptoms, and this may last for two to three days or even longer in some cases. So I hope that I painted a picture and highlighted the timeline, which hopefully can create some justification for the prompt recognition of the symptoms early on, but also to allow for the management and further and prevention of the further worsening of these symptoms. Well, not only did I do I think you created a great timeline, but I think you also highlighted how challenging it can be when symptoms can manifest from six hours to 72 or even longer hours after, you know, alcohol cessation or or reduction. So um, kind of showing how challenging it can be and how people may present wildly differently and how that can kind of complicate some of our management. Now, ultimately, when we're treating, you know, alcohol withdrawal disorder, what's our, what's our treatment goal? What are we, what's our ultimate thing that we're trying to do here? Yeah. Um, so ultimately, Nick, the treatment goal is to reduce the frequency and the duration of the symptoms highlighted before. So we want to make sure that the symptoms, if they do persist, are not hanging on for too long because there is subsequent sequelae that can occur with the longer the symptoms last. We also want to make sure that we prevent seizures and other severe symptoms that might come along with the alcohol withdrawal disorder. And finally, we have to make sure that the treatments that we're using are not causing more harm with the drugs that we're selecting. And given the pathophysiology of the syndrome, the drug therapies that we use are targeted usually to activate the GABAergic pathways and or reduce the excitatory or the NIA-NMDA activity Um, that we talked about previously. So today we're, we're focusing on alcohol withdrawal, but let's, let's talk about a situation that I think many have encountered or at least received a question about prior to patients experiencing withdrawal. And I think this is, I think our surgical colleagues probably maybe relate the most to this, but should we ever give someone alcohol, whether it's wine, beer, liquor, what have you, as an inpatient to prevent alcohol withdrawal? So, you know, this actually comes up every now and then. Um, And there is tremendous variability in the kinetics of alcohol metabolism, especially in chronic users and in patients with liver disease. Additionally, there is a host of reasons why alcohol use for the treatment of alcohol withdrawal disorder it's not a great idea. So let me give you a few of those reasons. So first, ethanol or alcohol has a much shorter duration of action, right? So that means you have to administer it multiple times at multiple frequencies. And you can see how this could be uh, challenging for pharmacological care. Uh, ethanol has a super narrow therapeutic window. Alcohol can lower the seizure threshold. It irritates the gastric mucosa. It can cause fatty liver. It can worsen hepatic failure. It can lead to accumulation of toxic metabolites, such as acetaldehyde. It can cause excessive sedation, which we don't want in our patients usually. It can also cause respiratory depression, especially in elderly or patients with organ dysfunction. You can also throw in a host of drug-drug interactions. Let me say that one more time for the people in the back. It can have a host of drug-drug interactions, right? So... If all that is not convincing enough, Nick, there's been studies that actually compared alcohol or ethanol to current therapies, including benzodiazepines. And these studies, time and time again, have shown that ethanol has no advantage over our conventional therapies and it has worse side effects. Additionally, prescribing alcohol for a patient with alcohol dependence sends the wrong message that they have a clinical permission or justification to continue drinking and that it is acceptable and not harmful to their health. So in summary, ethanol, whether it's wine, beer, whiskey, is not appropriate for the treatment or prevention of alcohol withdrawal. And I, I hope I made a good case of that. I think you actually, I, I think you absolutely did. Um, I think one of the big points you highlighted is that it sounds like 
we really have no idea how people are going to respond. And somebody can claim they have a really good, safe way of managing it that may have possibly worked for one patient in the past. That's absolutely true. But that might have catastrophic problems or failures for the next two people you try it on. And so it's just, at the end of the day, we're always trying to, number one, first do no harm, right? And I think that's one of the big, one of the big points here against that. Absolutely. So almost everyone listening is probably familiar with the fact that symptom trigger treatment strategies with benzodiazepines are commonly used for the treatment of alcohol withdrawal. But Kent, give us a little inside in, insight into why we do this and what has this symptom trigger treatment strategy been shown to do? Absolutely, Nick. So as you mentioned, different benzodiazepine strategies have been studied and utilized in patients with alcohol withdrawal disorder. This has included front load dosing, uh, fixed or scheduled dosing, and as you highlighted, symptom triggered management, meaning only given doses of uh, benzodiazepines or medications when patients exhibit symptoms typically determined by a type of withdrawal or sedation scale. Among these strategies, symptom-triggered treatment is often favored because it has shown time and time again that when you utilize this approach, you end up using less amounts of benzodiazepines, but also a less duration of therapy overall. And as you may recall, that's one of our treatment goals when we're managing these patients. We know from the data from the original Decarolis studies in 2007 that um, in addition to other studies, including one using chlorodiazepoxide with a symptom-triggered protocol, these strategies have been shown to decrease the number of benzodiazepines that we provide to our patients, as well as the overall duration of treatment. The one critique, however, with symptom-triggered management approach is that you may undertreat the patient's alcohol withdrawal disorder symptoms, and in some instances, overtreat when patient's symptoms present similarly to other clinical syndromes. You um, highlighted that we performed a survey um, through a critical care listserv, but also on social media. And this survey highlighted that about 60%, so with the critical care listserv uh, respondents, that was 39 out of 65 respondents utilized a hybrid approach, meaning uh, scheduling benzodiazepine therapies with superimposed symptom trigger therapy. Now, this may be reasonable as it provides a proactive approach in treating alcohol withdrawal disorder. However, it may also lead to unintended consequences, including dose stack and an increase in side effects, especially when agents with different pharmacokinetic properties are utilized concomitantly. And this was one of our, um, you know, we we talked about the, about the at the beginning where we had a we created a survey to try to get an idea of how some of the listeners and our peers and colleagues were helping manage alcohol withdrawal disorder. And um, you know, you 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 touched on the the two top answers in both the the Twitter poll and kind of the listserv survey that we sent out, where it is. You know, in one in one symptom triggered was number one, and a combination was number two, and then vice versa. You know, it flipped for the other. So these are the most common kind of um, strategies from the people that we polled. Now, I really like the idea of doing symptom triggered for the first twenty four to forty eight hours, get an idea of what their requirements are, and then trying to start the fixed dose to help titrate off as they're out of that acute phase. That tends to be, at least from my very limited experience, what what's worked well. But obviously, there's there's many different ways to, to kind of um, practice here. Now, when we're thinking of which benzodiazepine to use, what are some considerations that we need to try to keep in mind? Um, that's, that's a good question. And um, I, I say there's no uh, straightforward answer. So, uh, Nick, there are uh, different considerations for the benzodiazepine selection as you highlighted. And we know that no specific benzodiazepine is superior over the other for the management of alcohol withdrawal disorder. 
So selecting an agent should be based on the drug-specific properties, including its pharmacokinetic properties. Longer-acting benzodiazepines such as oxide or diazepam may offer a smoother withdrawal upon cessation due to its long half-life and may be more ideal when using a loading dose um, because the long half-life is not going to be a concern in the scenario. Um, this would be ideal example in patients with neurologic injury. Shorter acting benzodiazepines such as lorazepam, however, offer less risk over sedation, which may be ideal in patients who are elderly or those who have liver impairment. You also have considerations for benzodiazepines that have rapid CNS redistribution, such as midazolam, and this may also be more ideal in patients with neurologic injury or even in your general critical care population when a continuous infusion is desired. However, it's important to note that midazolam does have active metabolites, including an alpha-hydroxy metabolite, which may accumulate in patients with renal dysfunction. So generally, if a short-acting agent is used, the risk for developing tolerance for shorter-acting benzodiazepines in patients with severe alcohol withdrawal syndrome needs to be considered, and a continuous infusion may be needed in some of these critically ill patients with severe symptoms. As I alluded to earlier, Nick, alcohol affects um, the conformation of GABA receptors, and as such, benzodiazepine tolerance might develop, especially with these shorter-acting agents. So it is very important to incorporate objective assessment tools and also to allow for ample time to assess the drug effects so that one can determine the need for additional doses, especially if you're using something like a symptom-triggered approach, or also determine the need for alternative dosing strategies when you feel like your benzodiazepine therapies are not working. Let's put a pin in that in that kind of last statement because that's a that's a perfect kind of lead in into kind of like my next question. But I, I wanted to highlight as we're, you know, as 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 COVID is starting to, you know, increase and has increased in a kind of across the country. And as people are dealing with drug shortages, I think those are really important pearls to keep in mind um, so that when we have to switch from maybe the agent that we're used to using, um, that we can make sure that these patients are still getting kind of safe and effective therapy. Absolutely. And so you were hinting on the fact that you, um, depending on you know, your dose may need to change or your patient may not necessarily be responding to your the treatment um, that you're using. So a common scenario that that can happen is patients who are in benzodiazepine-resistant alcohol withdrawal. So how do we know if a patient is kind of experiencing this? And, and I'm asking because when you're dealing with resistant alcohol withdrawal, we may need to use larger benzodiazepine doses than we typically would. And I think these larger doses may lead to provider discomfort with not only ordering, but also administering um, some of these regimens. Um, I, I think um, it is very tricky because you, you, there is no gold standard as to a time point uh, universally to assess when one is going to respond to the general class of benzodiazepines, right? So as I alluded to earlier, I think it is important to understand the kinetics of the drug and when you would expect an onset of action and how long the drug is going to last. But it's also important to incorporate some objective measure with a validated or some kind of assessment tool to then objectively figure out what those symptoms are manifesting as so that you can then use those side by side and say, okay, so I gave a shorter acting drug at this time point, and after X number of minutes or hours, the patient score is worsening. So this is my trigger to give additional doses. Now, if you do that for a few rounds and the patient scores are continuing to worsen, then I think that can be a good hint that perhaps the patient is not responding to your current therapy. And perhaps you may consider uh, optimizing the dose or considering alternative therapies altogether. I really like that strategy because I think especially for those who deal in the ICU world, um, 
sometimes we, these patients can be really tricky to deal with and no, sometimes you don't realize that they're, they're a kind of benzodiazepine resistant alcohol withdrawal until it's almost too late. If you know what I mean, like we, so making sure that we're monitoring and following these people up front to, um, to be sure that we're treating them kind of the safest and most appropriately is, is really going to help you in the long term. For sure. And it, it takes a village, right? So I, I think mm-hmm. a pharmacist cannot do this alone and neither can a nurse or neither can a physician or an APP. So it is important to just bring everyone on board and get the whole team in the mix of uh, nurse and doing the assessments, but also the pharmacist providing the expert uh, drug uh, recommendations to allow for optimized pharmacotherapy across the board. So you, you said it perfectly. Now we keep mentioning these symptom triggered and and giving medication based on a a score or a scale. So I'm sure many people might be wondering, hey, what's this score scale tool we might be using? So a common monitoring tool that that I think many of us use for alcohol withdrawal disorder is the CWAAR scale. Simply, frequently referred to, you may hear it throughout that your hospital or health system as CWA um, for symptom triggered treatment. Now, what goes into this specific scale, um, and are there any big limitations as to why maybe there might be other scales that that, that places might be using? Um, I think this question, like all the other questions, are, are um, tricky and um, not straightforward, <laughs> but we, we can do our best to at least uh, provide some objective information to guide our listeners so the CWA AR scale, as you highlighted, or generally called the CWA scoring tool, integrates an assessment of 10 discrete components upon patient interview to reach a maximum component score of 67. So in order to utilize the CWA scoring tool, Nick, the patient must have a history of recent alcohol use, but also they must be able to communicate in order to answer specific questions. Uh, as you can see, this may be challenging patients who are intubated or have an alternate reason to be disoriented, such as patients with neurologic injury, which we see all the time. Uh, it is um, important to also recognize that the intent originally of the CWA scoring tool was to be used as a triage uh, tool um, to figure out where a patient should go based on severity of alcohol withdrawal. Many of the studies that have evaluated CWA have also excluded patients with seizures, which is an important sign of severe alcohol withdrawal and should be taken into consideration. So to date, there is still no definitive guidance on which assessment tool is best for critically ill or intubated patients, but at least the CWA is one of the few validated tools we have to use for assessment in the setting. And oftentimes you see that in patients who may not be able to uh, objectively answer certain questions because of some of the aforementioned reasons, such as in patients who are mechanically ventilated, you might see that the MINDS assessment tool may be a reasonable tool either used uh, in place of the CIWA or sometimes you see that the CIWA plus another tool such as the sedation agitation scale or SAS or the Richmond agitation sedation scale or RAS is used concomitantly when patients are no longer able to communicate. So I hope I provided some um, less confusing but brief um, context as to the uh, historical perspective of the CEWA assessment tool, but also some other considerations and other tools that one can consider in select critically ill patients. I, mean, I thought that was a fantastic summary. And and you hit the nail on the head in that the CWA scale really depends on the patient to be able to answer and participate in this. And I think all of us are familiar with our extremely sick alcohol withdrawal patient. They're not really just going to be able to answer eight questions in a row um, very easily. And so I think the that's the really big benefit of the mind scale. And then the other, the other kind of area that I really like to highlight is that the CWA scale, it seizures are not addressed at all. One of the biggest, um, 
things that we're trying to prevent when al- with alcohol withdrawal. And so somebody could be seizing from alcohol withdrawal and that that's not going to show up on the CWA scale. So it might not reflect their true severity of illness. Whereas when you look kind of comparing to the mind's um, scale or tool, um, it does. So I think that's one of the kind of, in my mind, one of the biggest differences that, that I also like to highlight. Correct. And what, what would be interesting and maybe perhaps an opportunity to fill the gap in the literature and in future times as a comparison of uh, both assessment uh, tools uh, objectively in some kind of perspective fashion to get us an idea or provide some guidance. And uh, we also need further, further uh, robust literature validating the MINDS assessment tool and critically ill patients. But I, I certainly think there's more to come on that. Now, one of the, I would say, I have hottest written down, but I'm going to say like scorching hot, just on fire topics um, in critical care right now is the use of phenobarbital for alcohol withdrawal. I, I think in, in when you go to critical care or emergency medicine conferences, I think you're bound to find at least one talk or some sort of discussion on it. So how does phenobarbital work in this specific patient population? Yeah, Nick, it's definitely a hot button and certainly um, has gained traction over time. And maybe perhaps we can talk about some of the interesting uh, findings in the survey we did uh, Mm -hmm. towards the end regarding this. Uh, But phenobarb or phenobarbital is an attractive option because in addition to binding to the active site of the GABA receptor, thereby prolonging the duration of the chloride channel opening and subsequent inhibitory effects. It also antagonizes NMDA receptors, which we know from our previous discussion are upregulated and excited during the alcohol withdrawal phase. Additionally, uh, phenobarb has a lower addiction potential given its longer half-life. And generally, when it's administered, the initial dose should be administered prior to implementation of a benzodiazepine therapy if that is used. Um, from a dose and approach, I guess we can get into that. Um, front load in um, with doses up to somewhere 15 milligrams per kilo, and even sometimes higher, up to 25 milligrams per kilogram patients' actual body weight have been used in some cases, and then followed that by a gradual taper in fixed doses, all the when utilized as an adjunctive therapy with benzodiazepines based on the patient's symptoms has been shown to decrease the rate of progression to mechanical ventilation. So there is some data that supports uh, phenobarbital use in the setting. However, it's not without side effects. Um, over sedation and respiratory depression, especially when used concomitantly with high, high doses of benzodiazepine infusions or doses, patients often require high doses of benzos due to the downregulation of benzodiazepine receptors that present in the setting. So phenobarb can be a potentially tricky drug and uh, sometimes confusing for providers to use. Its role in therapy generally is that initially in high-risk patients or patients with non-severe symptoms, it might be an ideal agent. In patients with benzodiazepine refractory alcohol, or as we talked about uh, previously, how that's also confusing to ascertain, phenobarb might be a reasonable second-line option for patients as an adjunctive therapy. There is no clear advantage of phenobarb, however, as an alternative agent to benzodiazepine therapy, so it's important to note that it is not a first-line agent by any means at this time. But we also know that we need more data, more robust data, really comparing the two to see if we can potentially justify its selection based on its ideal PK uh, properties that we highlighted before. And I think one of the, when you, one of the questions that I have as I, when I think about phenobarbital in alcohol withdrawal is the dosing. And you mentioned it can be anywhere from a weight-based dose, you know, up to, like you said, the 25 mg per kg. I, you know, I see 10 mg per kg a lot too. But then you'll also see more of like the fixed dose where you might do 260 milligrams once and then you kind of do, you know, 130 or maybe 65. So how do we, in thinking about not only getting the appropriate dose, but also making sure that we get this medication to these patients in a timely fashion, 
how how should we be dosing it or do we are we still trying to figure out our best most evidence-based dosing strategy for phenobarb um i think the straightforward answer is that we don't know what the optimal dose uh, for phenobarb is and a few things that one should consider is where you given this drug at so if you're given the drug in a location that is um, has the drug readily available, then it might be reasonable to optimize it based on what's been studied with the front load of the 15 milligrams per kilo. But operationally, that has to come from somewhere. So if pharmacy has to, or the pharmacist has to make it um, in uh, the IV room and send it to the patient um, bedside, uh, Time may be critical and maybe perhaps not ideal. So that's when you see the other doses that you highlighted and more fixed doses um, where it might be readily available in your emergency department or in your critically um, ill patient care area. So the jury's still hung on that. And we, we hope that maybe there will be further prospective studies really looking at uh, optimal dosing strategies in the setting. And Perhaps we'll get some answers um, in the near future. I, I think this question in our poll and survey probably surprised us maybe the most because there were two things that stood out to me when we kind of asked if your institution utilizes, you know, phenobarb um, for the management of alcohol withdrawal disorder. And I think... You know, it looks like around, you know, anywhere from a third to half don't really routinely use it. But what stood out to me is there are lots of institutions that use it without restrictions. You can just use it anywhere. And I'm thinking of the of, of using phenobarb on a med surge floor where the where the nurse has, you know, six to eight patients. It seems like based on the, some of those adverse effects you highlighted, specifically like respiratory depression and things that, um, you know, making sure we have safe safe monitoring parameters and effect um, definitely would be a really good thing, especially if you're not having restrictions to where it can be used. Absolutely. What was striking to me, Nick, and um, one of the um, critical care uh, poll in question was that 25% of respondents, so I believe 17 out of a total of 67 people or institutions who responded, um, again, as you highlighted, you use phenobarbital, I mean, in a loaded dose plus a taper in select patients uh, throughout the institution without any restrictions to patient care area. And as you highlighted the safety concerns that should be considered, I think also operational considerations. So if, if you're, you have a thousand bed hospital and you're allowing um, phenobarb to be used widely throughout the institution, you can see how that can be a, an operational challenge for pharmacy departments. And you, you highlighted, I, I did not do a good job of kind of breaking down, but we had, you know, on Twitter polls, you can get different respondents for different questions, but we had around 160 responses and a really good breakdown in this survey between, you know, community, um, academic medical center, private community. And, you know, the majority of the respondents work in a MICU or a mixed ICU, which is where, you know, classically a lot of these alcohol withdrawal um, disorder patients might go. But yeah, definitely the the phenobarb um, was definitely a, a little bit of a um, surprising answer. But I think just like you highlighted, I think we're really trying to still work out and iron out phenobarb's true role in this um, disorder, as well as how to best use it, um, potentially as monotherapy or an adjunct with with some of our other treatments. For sure. Now, I I think an issue that can drive many pharmacists crazy, and when I say many pharmacists, it might be just an N of one, which would be me. Um, <laughs> but I think. It can, it can be a problem in a sense when dexmedetomidine is being used for alcohol withdrawal treatment as monotherapy. So what is the role of dexmedetomidine in alcohol withdrawal and what has it been shown to do? Yeah, that's a good one. And I think you're maybe perhaps have another person in your company, so maybe at an NO2, <laughs> um, but you're absolutely correct. Uh, the main role for dex or dexmedetomidine is that it possesses anxiolytic and sympathetic properties that 
attenuate uh, the autonomic hyperactivity. So dexmedetomidin itself does not address underlying physiologic deficits that we see in alcohol withdrawal disorder and should not be used to monotherapy. Its role is that it can be used or considered as an adjunctive agent in patients who continue to exhibit symptoms despite optimal first-line therapies. Dexmedetomidine also can cause bradycardia and hypotension, especially with loading doses there, and it does not prevent withdrawal seizures, so you can see how that can also be dangerous. There are several retrospective studies that have looked at dexmedetomidine as an adjunctive therapy, and all of them have generally found that it may reduce benzodiazepine pain requirements, so that's a good thing for that. There was a single prospective randomized double-blind placebo-controlled study by Mueller et al. in 2014. The study looked at about 24 patients, so um, eight patients in each arm. One arm used a fixed dose of dexmedetomidine, which was considered the high-dose arm, and the dose selected was 1.2 microgram per kilo per hour. There was a low-dose arm, which utilized 0.4 microgram per kilo per hour, and then the third arm was the placebo arm. In this study, both the low-dose and the high-dose groups had market reductions in benzodiazepine exposure when compared to the placebo group. So in terms of additional items to help guide appropriate dexmedetomidine use, I think optimizing provider ordering because as you highlighted, use monotherapy is not appropriate and can actually be dangerous. So um, how can we guide our providers in selecting the drug for the right indications with the appropriate first-line therapies already on board? So we can optimize ordering by including things like indications for use with perhaps passive alerts to drive prescribing. Uh, and we know that that has been successful in some institutions, including mine. And what a, what a great um, study that you highlighted from um, a lot of our pharmacy colleagues from the University of Colorado, um, you know, who did this great study. And I, the biggest thing is that it's a GABA-mediated disease. And we are, if, if we use dexmedetomidine monotherapy, we have no GABA activity. So that's, yeah, you, you, you highlighted all of my concerns. And um, I'm glad that I'm not the only one that gets frustrated when you see somebody who's in alcohol withdrawal that's only gotten you know, decks for 30 hours since they've, since they've been admitted to the ICU. Yeah, you're definitely not alone in that. I, and I'm sure majority, if not all of our listeners are probably with you on that one. I, I think, I think from, from an ease of therapy, I think some people may do it just because you can, you know, it's one of those where the theory is that they could just titrate the dexmedetomidine rather than having to do the CWA scale, right? Every hour or the mind scale or what have you, that can obviously be time consuming and things, but um, there's always trade-offs when we, when we do those types of things. Absolutely. And oftentimes the best thing is not the easiest thing to do. So the older I get, I'm, I'm learning that, that it's typically the, like it's, it's almost never the easiest thing, unfortunately. No, no, when it comes to alcohol withdrawal, it's definitely not. <laughs> so another kind of, we're kind of in the, the area now of some of our adjunctive therapies. Um, so another one, obviously we, we, we can't have a critical care podcast and not talk about ketamine. Oh my gosh, are you kidding? So, yeah. you know, ketamine. Let's talk about it. <laughs> and, you know, ketamine has sympathomimetic properties. And so in this really excitatory disease state, it almost seems counterintuitive to use it in alcohol withdrawal. But can can we use ketamine, or, or should we use ketamine for alcohol withdrawal disorder? Yeah, let's talk about ketamine or special K, I call it. <laughs> so, <laughs> so ketamine is a dissociative sedative. Um, you highlighted its mechanism. Uh, so it's it's a non-competitive and. DA receptor antagonist um, that ultimately blocks glutamate. So it mimics the effects of alcohol at this receptor, Nick. Um, and if you recall what we described previously during the acute phase when this is happening, this, this might actually be um, something that could be helpful. Um, ketamine also um, additionally has the ability to be rapidly titrated to effect and it also lacks respiratory depression even at high doses. 
Um, so you can see how this could be an ideal agent. Um, generally, when ketamine is used, an infusion is what has been noted to be helpful. So um, specifically, ketamine infusion in this population, so patients who present with alcohol withdrawal disorder, has been associated in the literature, um, not robust, but in what we have, with reduced ICU stay, um, also lower cumulative doses of benzodiazepines, but also reductions in intubation rates. However, all of the available studies I have to disclose are retrospective in nature, and the samples are super small. So, for example, in 2015, there was a retrospective study that looked at the use of ketamine, not monotherapy, so I have to clarify, as an adjunctive agent to benzodiazepines in acute alcohol withdrawal in only 23 characterly ill patients. So this small study also supported the concept, as I highlighted before, that ketamine can reduce the amount of benzodiazepines needed to manage alcohol withdrawal acutely. So generally, infusions can be helpful when administered together with conventional or standard management for the management of alcohol withdrawal. So we're we're keeping this kind of in our tool belt for our really sick kind of refractory um, alcohol withdrawal patients, and and maybe not necessarily kind of in our first line treatment options. I would say so because there is no consensus. Um, on even how to dose it or when to start it, right? Mm-hmm. And ultimately, because of the lack of robust data, the, all available studies, I think I highlighted, are retrospective in nature. And there are better drugs, um, no direct comparison studies, to my knowledge. There are also cheaper drugs. Um, <laughs> so I think as a pharmacist, we have to think about all of those things and um, look at the literature. And when there is um, not another um, uh, superior or inferior, there are comparable agents with limited data. We always have to go with what's cost effective and what's better for the patient ultimately from a safety standpoint as well. We also have to consider operational aspects. So I, I think I agree with you wholeheartedly that this would not be my first or even second line uh, option for the management of alcohol withdrawal disorder. So you alluded to earlier that sometimes our most sick patients with alcohol withdrawal disorder have to get put on the ventilator, right? They may need too too much, you know, medication or sedatives that can impair their, you know, cause respiratory depression or altered mental status, or they're just so agitated there, you you have to intubate them just for airway protection, right? Or, Or whatever reason kind of happens. And I think for patients who are on the ventilator, Propofol is an adjunct treatment for that that may be considered in some of those patients. So what is Propofol's role kind of in alcohol withdrawal? Um, and is there any evidence to say that we should be using this as monotherapy compared to adjunctive therapy? Yeah, so we all know Propofol. It is everywhere in our ICUs. And um, almost all of our mechanically ventilated patients are on it at some point in their ICU stay. Uh, we love propofol because it's rapidly titratable and as you know, provides an ability to achieve light and deep sedation dependent on the dose. So it's universally used in critical care space and its mechanism of action, specifically gabapentinergic and NMD antagonism simultaneously make it a super attractive option for patients in the setting of alcohol withdrawal disorder. Studies have looked at propofol for alcohol withdrawal disorder in general critical care patients, and it's also been studied with and without benzodiazepine therapy. So first, in general, withdrawal scores do not significantly change over time when propofol is in place, especially um, by itself, except perhaps early on in therapy. But we also learned that um, the use of propofol may slightly reduce or even have no effect on the need for benzodiazepine therapy. There is some signal, though, that propofol may be helpful in patients who are refractory to benzodiazepine therapy. So for its role in therapy, again, like ketamine, propofol wouldn't be a first-line option, but perhaps a consideration as an adjunctive therapy in patients who are benzodiazepine refractory. And I think if I had a pick... Propofol uh, or DEX, I would consider it 
after dexmedetomidine. Why? I'm not sure I was expecting that. I don't, I don't disagree, but I, I, I like that. Um, I like kind of putting them in a little kind of adjunctive power rankings there. I, I like that. Um, and, and I, no, go ahead. And, and I think the, the, the reason for that is, um, that uh, the literature for most of the infusions we see in this setting are not robust. Mm-hmm. And so one has to think about, well, uh, how do they compare from a safety standpoint? We know that prolonged infusions of propofol has um, unintended consequences, including press, uh, among other things like um, pancreatitis. We also know that DEX is relatively safe, aside from the bradycardia and hypotension that I highlighted with the bolus We also know that these agents can be used as adjuncts. Um, and when we do them together with our first-line therapies, um, generally, we see some reduction in the amount of benzodiazepines that we expose our patients to. So, uh, recall, do no harm, and we want less uh, drugs overall for our patients. So that, that, I think, is my justification for why I think dexmedetomidine might be um, more ideal than propofol in this setting. That's an adjunctive therapy, the standard therapy for the management of alcohol withdrawal disorder. Now, an, another surprising result to me was from from the the Poland survey was the the use of valproic acid and gabapentin. I'm not saying I'm not saying that necessarily using that as combination therapy, you know, together, but they received a lot of support from the poll um, and survey as adjunct therapy for alcohol withdrawal disorder. Now, we'll kind of you know. I threw two drugs at you here, but let's we'll, we'll kind of potentially go one at a time, one at a time. But what is the evidence for for valproic acid or Depakote and gabapentin um, for their use in alcohol withdrawal disorder? Yeah, I I, I was also pleasantly surprised to <laughs> see the number of respondents who um, are actively using both agents with some confidence uh, for the management of alcohol withdrawal disorder. I think if um, I am interpreting the results correctly, over almost uh, 55% of the respondents in the critical care listserv survey did assert um, gabapentin as uh, one of the primary adjunctive therapies utilized in the setting. Similarly, um, over a quarter of the respondents utilized valproic acid when adjunctive therapies were um, in play here. So let's provide some context um, additionally to the survey respondents. Uh, first, valproic acid or uh, sodium valproate. In addition to its anticonvulsant properties, which we know is critical and um, necessary in this uh, physiology of alcohol disorder, valproic acid has proven to have mood stabilizing and or anxiolytic effects with GABA potentiating mechanism of action, which makes it an attractive agent in the setting. So what does the literature tell us? Uh, as you probably expected, the studies for either valproate or gabapentin are not robust. So for valproic acid, however, there was a small study of 36 patients, but it was prospective, randomized, double-blind, placebo-controlled. The study looked at valproic acid dosed at 500 milligrams three times daily for seven days in patients who presented with a CELA score of 10 or greater who were also receiving concomitant benzodiazepine therapies. Valproic acid in this setting was compared to patients who also received placebo concomitantly with benzodiazepine therapies. What they found was that patients who received valproic acid had less benzodiazepine exposure, but also experienced less worsening of symptoms, meaning their CWAR scores did not escalate or worsen over time. We also know that valproic acid is relatively safe, especially when it's monitored and not used for a prolonged duration. However, we must highlight that it has some side effects that are noteworthy, specifically hepatotoxicity, transaminitis, Hyperammonemia is sometimes seen with high doses or prolonged exposure, 
and theoretical cytopenia. I say theoretical because there is conflicting literature that asserts the side effect. And these are some potential safety considerations of valproic acid. So now let's shift gears a little bit to gabapentin. Of all of the adjuncts, it is probably the most safe, I think. Primarily, gabapentin modulates GABA through the suppression of membrane depolarization. Typical doses that have been studied um, go up to 2,400 milligrams in divided doses, which is usually given within the first 24 hours of patient presentation and initiation of first-line therapies. And this is usually followed by a gradual taper. And this dosing strategy appears to be the most effective when used as an adjunct therapy. So I think if a patient comes in on it, so a patient is home on um, gabapentin, and they come in, and this is the agent that one decides to um, use and maintain, um, there may not be robust data, but it makes sense to perhaps optimize the dose into what we know has been helpful in the management of alcohol withdrawal. Um, and it would not be unreasonable to continue this for that duration of therapy and then go back to what they were on at home before they get discharged. So kind of summarizing what what I took away from that is that it sounds like, especially for patients who are experiencing alcohol withdrawal and come to the ICU, gabapentin might be one of those adjunctive agents that can kind of be, you know, on that order set for the ICU admission where, you know, those patients can come in and it can really um, help re- help improve some of their care. Whereas valproic acid, although yes, it certainly can do a lot of those things just based on some of the side effects, that might not be an agent that we want to use for everybody all the time. Um, I, I think you, you said it really well. The the one thing that I would note is that it, it gets sometimes tricky and difficult to incorporate some of these therapies um, into an order set. One has to consider things like enteral access for agents like gabapentin. So if this is the route that um, uh, a pharmacist or an institution um, pursues, it will be Uh, critical to provide um, guidance to providers as to when it is appropriate to select some of these enteral therapies versus um, other agents that may be able to be administered as injectables. But you are absolutely correct. Gabapentin is fairly safe. Um, uh, It it is um, effective, at least in the limited literature that we have, and would be a reasonable adjunctive therapy in the setting. Um, the one thing, Nick, I also wanted to add that gabapentin does not um, appear to be effective at treating withdrawal seizures. Um, in studies that looked at gabapentin, patients continue to have breakthrough seizures uh, in the setting of gabapentin use for alcohol withdrawal. So if it, if it is incorporated into an order set, I think some decision support will be important to note there or some informational text for providers to that let them know that this this would not be optimal in patients who continue to have seizures in the setting of alcohol withdrawal. Oh, I think that's a really important point to kind of highlight there. So thank you for that. Um, Kent, you've done such a, a great job of of reviewing and and giving us a great overview, especially into the pharmacotherapy of of a disorder or syndrome that can um, have widely ranging signs and symptoms. But what maybe advice or or um, tips and tricks would you give to pharmacists who are looking to kind of create or revamp some of their alcohol withdrawal, you know, guidelines or protocols or um, corresponding kind of decision support tools in CPOE in their EHR systems? Um, I say get creative. There are so many options um, as we've gone over in the last hour that um, have promise for the management of this syndrome, especially in our critically ill patients. We know that there are no universally accepted guidelines to date for the management of alcohol withdrawal disorder. So this is where we um, excel as pharmacists to really get creative and um, look at the literature, bring in our expertise and provide guidance as to what would be the optimal agent um, sequentially uh, in this setting. 
there are studies to guide us. So uh, we also have some validated assessment tools that we can consider in development of guidelines or protocols. I have to highlight, though, the American Society of Addiction Medicine published some guidelines earlier this year. And I actually really like them. The guidelines are to be used in the setting of patients who are ambulating, so in the ambulatory setting, but also in the inpatient setting. They provide recommendations for identification and diagnosis of alcohol withdrawal disorder. They also provide guidance for initial assessment that includes a comparison of the different assessment tools that we talked about within the last hour. And then finally, they provide guidance and recommendations for um, patients who may be not hospitalized. So some pharmacists may be practicing uh, detoxification centers who may benefit from reviewing this document, but also they provide guidance for our critically ill patients who are hospitalized. So that would be a good uh, reference to give you a bird's eye view as to what the assessment tools, uh, the pharmacotherapeutic agent, and some of the general challenges that one should consider. But getting back to your question about how one goes by uh, creating a guideline or a protocol or optimizing the CPOE, it's important to first understand current practices and perhaps comparing how you're doing at your institution to other peer institutions or surrounding sites. I would also highly consider seeing which agents your hospitals are currently using and how they're being used so then you can target your interventions better. If one wanted to create a guideline or a protocol or um, some resource, maybe pilot something and then perform a quality improvement assessment and then tweak it until you get it right. I uh, would also consider incorporating an assessment tool directly into your computer system if feasible and would encourage, highly encourage uh, including or engaging nursing colleagues as champions for this effort because they're going to be doing the assessment tools. We talked about how it is important to provide some objective screening or assessment to guide when to repeat doses, for example. Um, do not incorporate, finally, beer or wine or whiskey into your alcohol withdrawal management <laughs> if you decide to create a guideline or protocol. So I think those would, would sum up uh, what I would recommend to any pharmacist who is looking to create or revamp their alcohol withdrawal guideline. Oh, that's absolutely fantastic um, knowledge and advice for everybody listening here. So I, I really appreciate that. Now we're we're winding down in terms of in terms of the year. We're kind of in that in that holiday period between Thanksgiving and Christmas. Now let's let's step back to Thanksgiving for a second. So what would you say? Because there's plenty of options for food. All of us were full yesterday. What would you say is your favorite Thanksgiving side? That's a tough one because I I love to eat. Um, but I will say my sister makes the most amazing sweet potato potato casserole. Mm. So it has to be that. Um, yeah, I, I think I ate by myself half of the, half of the, the entire, um, uh, you know, the plate. Um, but I, I would say that's my favorite uh, thing, uh, to eat as a side item during Thanksgiving. Is it, is it well known within the family how much you love it? Like, are they making an extra portion of that dish specifically <laughs> for, for you and your stomach? If I have to answer that, assertively, that's probably the bad side. But yes, <laughs> most people are a little bit um, conservative when they make their plates when they see me around. <laughs> okay, and then you know we're getting into you know I think I've already I've I've heard Christmas music now for about the last forty eight hours, so I think we're officially in the season. So, what would you say is your favorite Christmas song? Something by Leona Lewis. She has the most angelic voice. I think I really like uh, Oh Holy Night by her, at least in the last, it came out maybe like seven years ago and I've, I've listened to it on repeat a few Christmases since then and that I think that's got to be my go-to. How about yours? Um, I would say my favorite is probably the Bruce Springsteen version of Santa Claus is Coming to Town. Oh, I just love it when he, when he rocks out, but the, the one that just stands out that I, that I think is just incredible and they, they took it off of Spotify. But if you go on YouTube, there's a, there's a Rudolph, the red nosed reindeer that's performed by DMX. 
Yes. And it is and it is as amazing as you expect if you have any idea who DMX is, if you're listening, which I'm guessing there are listeners who have no clue who that is. But if you have any clue, go to YouTube, listen to it. It's one of those that like I could listen to it on repeat because I'm just in awe of it, to be honest with you. <laughs> I, I agree, but you have to be careful when you play it around people who haven't heard it before. <laughs> oh, that is that's very true. That might be one that you you pop the headphones on to give it the two minute listen first. Yeah. Precisely. <laughs> I think there's only one wrong answer here and it's, and it's Mariah Carey's all I want for Christmas. And I know there's people that felt attacked right there. The first hundred <laughs> times I listened to it, it was great. It, but now that I'm on time, probably 9,000, I'm just, it, it's, it's run its course for me, but I'm assuming I'm going to listen to it another hundred times. Like we probably all will during this season. And I'm sure there is multiple remakes of that. So you can switch the artist if you get tired of hearing her voice. Don't attack us. <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, Kent, thanks so much for, for coming on and joining me. Uh, for, all, for all the listeners out there, uh, Kent is on Twitter at TigerNole13, T-I-G-E-R-N-O-L-E-1-3. I, I love the subtle shout out to both of your alma maters and your Twitter handle. You got to do it. You got to do it. <laughs> uh, well, Kent, I appreciate you. I'm glad you had a good holiday and um, hopefully you were, were able to um, wrap 2020 on a good note. Nick, it's been an absolute pleasure. I enjoyed um, talking about this um, uh, uh, disorder. I'm no expert by any means, but it certainly was a good learning experience for me and I'm happy to share my thoughts. So thank you for that. And I hope you enjoy the rest of the 2020 year and happy 2021. Yeah, absolutely. And, uh, you know, thanks again to Kent for, for being our special guest today. And as always, you know, please send me feedback, you know, both positive and negative, as well as any guest or topic ideas, uh, Twitter at pharmacy to dose, um, or via email pharmacy to dose. That's T O to dose at gmail.com. And on our website, pharmacy to dose.com, you'll find show notes as well as a reference list. And, you know, these links are available on the website and they're also embedded within the episode description. So until next time, I'm Nick Peters. And this is Pharmacy to Dose, the Critical Care Podcast.